Let's take our Bibles and be finding Paul's letter to the Galatians once again this morning. Galatians chapter number 6. Actually, we'll begin reading in just a moment the last part of chapter 5 as we make our way into chapter 6 today. If you need a pew Bible, there's one in front of you if you don't have a copy of God's Word with you. And our text will be found on page 916, right at the top of the page there on 916. So join us there in the Word of God. We're in a series Uh, We're about to wrap up um, from Paul's letter to the Galatians, one of the great uh, statements about salvation. Uh, We're couching it in terms of the essential gospel. What is the gospel? What does it mean? Why does it matter? What's important about the gospel? These are things that Paul shoots very straight at and uh, tackles uh, in a very brief kind of way, telling us what we have to know about matters associated with right standing before God, knowing God, walking with God, being blessed of God, living in the holiness of God. And so we're very thankful for the power of this incredible letter. We're in the last part of the letter, which is more practical. So we've been dealing with matters that are associated uh, not only with this incredible deep theology that Paul has spent several chapters talking to us about, but how to apply that to life. And that's what all of us need to know. Christianity is not just about knowing important things about God and about the Word of God, though it begins there. It's also about taking those things that we can know about God based on what God has chosen to reveal to us and putting those into practice so that it actually makes a difference in the way that we live. Paul calls it learning to walk by the Spirit of God, not living in the flesh as we used to live before we knew the Lord. But knowing the Spirit, having the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, and then most importantly, learning to consistently walk by the Spirit of God. As I read the Bible, I find that the question that I begin with today is indeed one of the most recognized questions of the Bible. It's found in the very first book of the Bible, actually in a very familiar story that you all likely know and have read many times, after offering a sacrifice to God in worship, the son of Adam and Eve, whose name was Cain, became angry that the Lord had accepted the sacrifice of his brother Abel, considering it more worthy than the sacrifice that Cain himself had brought and offered to the Lord. And as a result of that, his immediate response is to take the life of his brother, to slay him in the field. And when confronted by the Lord as to the whereabouts of his brother Abel, Cain immediately claimed ignorance, didn't he? And with a sense of open hostility still brimming in his heart, you can hear it in his voice. When he blurts out to God, am I my brother's keeper? You know, that's a question that's every bit as modern as it is ancient. Because we live in a very self-centered world. All of us are by nature focused on self. And in that self-centeredness that so often characterizes our broken, fallen natures. And in a world that's seeming to me anyway to become more individualistic and less community-minded by the day, 
We need to know what the gospel says about who we are as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to know how we're supposed to relate to one another who live and move and have their being inside this community of faith called the church. This is what's on Paul's mind as he turns his attention to what we have recorded as Galatians chapter 6. Paul's continuing to unpack this thing called the spirit-controlled life, the spirit-filled, spirit-controlled life as over against the flesh. And a part of that spirit-controlled life that Paul wants to address involves this very question, how are we supposed to relate to our brothers and our sisters in the family of God? You'll see what he is talking about here as we read our text, beginning in Galatians 5 and verse 25 this morning. Everybody ready to read? Would you say amen? This is the Word of God. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression... You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. Father, as we come before you this morning, we thank you for the power of your word, the incredible ability of the word of God by the spirit of God to plant itself deep in the lives of people and to literally radically transform their life. And I pray that that would even happen in the room this morning. For some of us need to be recalibrated in our walk with the Lord. We need to be called back on the solid ground of holiness and walking by the Spirit of God. And so by your word and by your spirit, would you do that this morning? Let it begin in the pulpit and radiate out into the pew. And we pray that you'll be very pleased with what happens in this room today, that we might be changed and live effectively For your glory alone, we pray it in Jesus' name and let all the church family together say amen. And you'll remember as we began chapter 5, what Paul's doing is he's talking about the life of freedom, been talking about the life of faith in the first four chapters, justification by faith alone in Christ alone plus nothing else, period, right? And now in chapters 5 and 6, he's transitioning from this emphasis on faith to an emphasis on freedom. How do we live that faith openly? Now that Christ has literally broken the bonds of sin and death and set us free, what does freedom mean for a believer? What does freedom not mean for a believer? Freedom is not the opportunity to do whatever you want now that Christ has saved you. We've already made that clear. Freedom is a freedom to become everything that God originally created you to be before sin jacked everything up. Amen. It's a freedom now to look like Jesus and to live like Jesus and to fulfill your purpose in Jesus Christ. That's not about making you look good and doing what you want. It's about making God look good and doing what God wants. This is a life of freedom for the believer. And a part of that is learning to overcome the flesh, learning 
to use Paul's language, to crucify the flesh. To live every day as if you really do understand that life is not all about you, right? And part of that means not only crucifying the flesh, but learning to walk by the Spirit. And if you know Jesus, how many of you here this morning know Jesus as Savior and Lord? Would you say amen this morning? Well, then you've got the Spirit of God on the inside of you. You're filled with the Spirit of God, baptized by the Spirit of God, controlled by the Spirit of God, led by the Spirit of God. What remains is simply this. Will you walk by the Spirit of God? That's a choice that you have to make. And this is what Paul is getting at in chapters 5 and 6, the difference between living according to the flesh and walking according to the Spirit. And so we want to continue that theme this morning because what Paul does is we bleed our way into chapter 6 as he gives us uh, uh, some examples about what a life that's walking by the Spirit actually looks like. These are some of the things that we can witness in a life that's controlled by the Spirit. Let me give you three or four of them to jot down this morning if you're a note taker today. First of all, we notice from this text that the Spirit liberates me, first of all, from self. Anybody have a problem here with themselves? Amen? Somebody said one time, if I could kick in the seat of the pants, the person that causes me the most trouble, I wouldn't be able to sit down for a month. Self. I mean, that story that we read or talked about just a few moments ago from the very first book of the Bible concerning the first murder that ever took place on planet Earth between two brothers of the same blood is a story fundamentally that deals with what happens when self rules the roost, when self is on the throne of your life. Can we just agree this morning that the greatest struggle that a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ ever faces is the struggle with self? It's at the root of every, name me a sin that you could possibly commit that doesn't begin with something having to do with you. Something that you desire, something you want, something that you're determined to do. Now, evidently, this was a spiritual struggle that was taking place in Galatia. We've learned that already, and it was causing a degree of division, all this false teaching that was taking place. People were confused. They didn't know what to believe. People were forming opinions, getting in each other's face about it, and so there was some division rivalry, dissension that was happening there. That's why Paul gets into it earlier in chapter 5. And that explains, I think, why Paul writes what he does here in chapter 5, verse 26. Let us not become what? Conceited, provoking one another, and envying one another. That word conceited was one of the first big words I ever learned when I was in middle school. Because everybody talked, well, he's conceited. She's conceited, conceited. And so when you got middle schoolers talking about a word like that, you know it's an issue. And Paul says, for the follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, that ought not be a thing, right? The word translated conceited there is a compound word in the Greek New Testament made up of two words scrunched together to make one word. Empty glory is what the word literally means. Translated in the King James Bible as vainglory. The Bible says in Philippians 2, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or vain conceit. That's the word kenoxidos, empty glory, a phantom glory. That's what happens when a person has an elevated opinion of themselves or an inflated opinion of themselves. It's usually not grounded in truth. 
That's what a conceited person is. It's somebody that glories in themselves. But the problem is it's a phantom glory. It's not real. It's concocted, a false notion. It's empty, empty glory. And Paul reinforces that idea when he says just a few verses later in chapter 6, for if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he what? Say it out loud. He he deceives himself. Most of us in the room probably, at least at times, have an artificially inflated view of ourselves. Isn't that true? That's been at least true of you at some point along the way. We, we have this tendency to think we're smarter than we are, better than we are, more holy than we are, <clears throat> more capable than we are. Lord have mercy, more correct than we are. Here's my opinion. You may disagree with it, but you've got a right to be wrong, that kind of thing. Muhammad Ali, who was not known for his humility, was once on a flight when the flight attendant passed by and noticed he didn't have his seatbelt fastened. She knew who he was, but she didn't make a big deal about it. She just pointed to his lap and said, sir, you need to fasten your safety belt before we take off. He looked back at her and he said, Superman don't need no seat belt. And without batting an eye, she looked back at him, the champion of the world, said, Superman don't need no airplane either. (laughs) You better put that seat belt on. A heavyweight champion buckled his seat belt with a vial on his face. Finally outwitted by somebody. Amen. See, it's that attitude that Paul's addressing here. He addresses it over in Romans 12, verse 3, when he says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. But to think with what? <clears throat> Sober judgment. Sobriety. Only when you're walking by the Spirit of God, you're going to be able to do that. Only by the Spirit of God can you honestly evaluate the reality of your life, your attitudes, your disposition, your motives, and do it in a spiritually appropriate kind of way. Because only by the Spirit can you see yourself as God actually sees you. You need help doing that. And believe you me, if the Spirit is residing in you, He'll give you an honest evaluation of yourself if you just slow down long enough to receive it. I mean, this is a must for the people of God because this kind of selfish conceit, it promotes those kinds of things that Paul talked about. We talked about them last week, the works of the flesh, rivalries, dissensions, arguments, quarreling, disagreements. Where does all that stuff come from? What comes from me? It comes from me. It reminds me of the essay contest that great London uh, religious philosopher G.K. Chesterton responded to that the Sunday Times of London was having one time, and they posed the question, write an essay response. If you win, we'll print it in the paper. And the question was, what's wrong with the world? Chesterton sat down and wrote a two-word response. Dear sirs, I am. I am. I'm what's wrong with the world. And we need to recognize that because if we don't, it's going to have after effects in the body of Christ. The results are predictable. In fact, Paul gives two of them here. He says, we'll either provoke others or we what? Envy one another. One of two things. The word provoke, the word provoke is an interesting word study in the Greek New Testament. It means to call out, 
to call out. So you get a little hot-tempered, and, 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 and temperatures escalate, and somebody eventually calls somebody else out. That's what, this is what Goliath was doing to the children of Israel. He was taunting them, and by his taunting them, he was calling them out. Come on, come on and get you some. And it was provocative to the people of Israel. That's what happens when a person has a hyperinflated ego, right? And he ended up losing his head because of it. Or the other end of the spectrum, you may not be the one causing the provocation if you have an inflated view of yourself, but sometimes you can have an inflated view of yourself and you can end up being the one provoked because you play the comparison game and you notice that somebody else has got it better than you do. And simply by the blessing of God on somebody else's life, and through no fault of the other person, just simply receiving the blessing of God, they become a provocation to you, and you become angry with them. And it creates a rivalry, and it creates a division. You see what I'm talking about? And it all begins with you. It all begins with your own inflated ego, one that Paul calls conceit. Either way, personal conceit's a work of the flesh. Because it fosters division within the family of faith. And the only remedy for it is what? Walk by the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And as you do that, you'll find secondly that the Spirit doesn't lead you to provoke others. It's not the Spirit that's leading you to envy other people. The Spirit will lead you to serve other people. And that's the second point. The Spirit compels me to serve. The Spirit leads me from self and compels me to serve. And we've already talked a little bit about this a couple of weeks ago because we've already seen in Galatians 5 that Christian freedom is a freedom from self and a freedom to serve. Paul says in verse 13 of chapter 5, Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Now, one of the ways we do that is highlighted in one of the more familiar verses of Paul's letter to the Galatians, which is chapter 6, verse 2. Notice what he says. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Very simple statement, but an important statement because this is one of the great one another statements that you find all over the New Testament. God's people are called to live and serve in Christian community. We are to be about the business of together life, serving the Lord together. Serve one another, Paul says. Bear one another's burdens. Now, you know what a burden is, don't you? It's a weight. It's a heavy load. And there's obviously a physical dimension to burden bearing. Some of you all work in blue-collar construction-type environments, and sometimes you may have to bear the burden of a bunch of two-by-fours across your shoulders, or you may have to bear the burden of a heavy five-gallon bucket filled with wet concrete. You know what I'm talking about. There are physical burdens that sometimes we have to push, pull, or carry, or drag. But more frequently, and I think more to the point in terms of what Paul's talking about here, the burdens that we have to carry are those emotional and spiritual burdens that just come attendant with living a broken life in a fallen, broken world. And would you not agree with me that 
If you had to choose, you would choose the heavy physical load over the heavy emotional spiritual load every day of the week and twice on Sunday. Amen. It's those spiritual emotional loads, psychological loads that are usually the heaviest loads to bear. I'm talking about the disease. I'm talking about the discouragement. I'm talking about the financial problems. I'm talking about the relational fractures of your life. I mean, it's those heavy internal loads that Paul's talking about here, and every one of us has them from time to time. And it's the responsibility of all of us to be sensitive to what's happening in the life of everybody else. And let me just say, as a commercial, this is why Connect Group is just absolutely indispensable. Because really, it's not in this room that we bear one another's burdens. It's in that smaller room that we bear one another's burdens. In that room where we know everybody by name. And we're not just an unnamed fellow believer here on the back row or up in the balcony or on the front row or whatever. Now, can I just say it? You need to know people's names in church. Because the Bible says that we have a responsibility to help bear one another's burdens. And you will bear heavy loads because we're not in heaven yet. This world is not heaven. And it's those heavy burdens that remind us, unlike anything else, why we have a longing to be in heaven. So we need to be sensitive to what's going on in the lives of others and then be willing to step into that position. This is when you know you're really not living conceited. How do I know if I'm living in a conceited, self-centered life. I don't want to have anything to do with anybody else. I got enough problems of my own. Why would I want to step into the problems of somebody else, the challenges of somebody else, the concerns of somebody else? Well, because God wants you to help lighten the burden. And God wants that other person to help lighten your burden. This is why Christian family is so important, and it's why the church is not an option for those who would follow after Jesus Christ. You need others, and others need you. You say, well, listen, the Bible says, cast all my care on the Lord, for he cares for me. Well, he does, but has it ever occurred to you that one of the ways that the Lord might lighten your burden is by using other Christian people to do it? Now, God uses people to accomplish his plan most of the time. Yes, cast all your care on him, for he cares for you. But just don't forget that the Bible, that same Bible says, bear one another's burdens. And so fulfill the law of Christ. One of the most stressful, disappointing times of our lives happened several years ago when Judy and I, and I mentioned this last week on Mother's Day, when we miscarried our first child. Judy was four months pregnant. She was showing. We were excited. And then <clears throat> bad stuff started to happen, and we had to go in and get checked. No heartbeat. Some of y'all lived through that yourself, and you know how disappointing that is. It was our first child. I was in seminary at the time, living in Fort Worth, Texas, 800 miles away from anybody who had the same blood as me. We had no family with us, only had time to make a very few friends, and they, I wouldn't even call them deep-seated friendships because we hadn't been around the campus long enough to do that. But we had some people that we did know and we had fellowship with, and I'd called home, talked to some family members on the phone, but then when I hung up the phone, I was back in that big old Fort Worth Hospital, 
all by myself, sitting in the waiting room, not another human being in the waiting room, just me. Probably the loneliest I've ever felt in my life. And I just needed somebody there to be with me. And so I called a couple of friends, and one of them talked to me on the phone for a few minutes. But that's all that happened. Good guy. Just talked to me. I called another friend. I, I got it out of my mouth. He said, where are you? And I told him where I was. He said, I'll be there in 15 minutes. Click. Rodney Combs, Ph.D. student in New Testament at Southwestern Seminary. And he came running, one of the first friends we made there. And you know what he did? i tell you what he didn't do. He didn't quote me any scripture. He didn't talk about God's will. He didn't do any of that. He talked to me about the Dallas Cowboys. Just right down the way. And there was a NASCAR race on the television. He started engaging me about what I knew about NASCAR. He talked to me about anything and everything to get my mind off of that heavy load. Boy, what a friend he was to me that day. I've never forgotten that. Paul, writing in 2 Corinthians, makes it very clear. I was downcast. My soul was troubled. He begins 2 Corinthians by writing about the comfort that God gives. But you know what he says? Yes, blessed be the God of all comfort. But then he gets to chapter 7, and he says that God comforted me by the coming of Titus. I've never forgotten that verse as it related to my own situation. Paul was all alone when he was writing 2 Corinthians, and never was he more encouraged than when somebody finally showed up. And that person was Titus to give him a word of encouragement and to bring a blessing from heaven by helping to bear the load off of his shoulders. You know, we're told this kind of one another burden bearing fulfills the law of Christ. Did you see that? What in the world does that mean? What is the law of Christ? Well, we kind of already talked about that. Paul's defined it in chapter 5 in verse 14 when he says, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. Would you say it together with me out loud together? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. See, all those Judaizers up there in South Galatia to whom Paul is writing, they weren't alleviating the burden. They were adding to the burden of the people by corrupting the gospel, throwing them into the confusion. God's people ought not be adding to the burdens of life. Instead, we're supposed to lighten the load. And the way that you do that is by loving and serving others, just as Christ has loved and served you. Everybody with me so far? Amen. So, when we're walking by the Spirit, we discover that the Spirit liberates us from self, compels us to serve by bearing others, one another's burdens. But then notice also that Paul adds that the Spirit uh, and those who are walking by the Spirit promote restoration. Restoration. There is a lot of brokenness in the family of God. Obviously, there's a lot of brokenness in the world, but there's a lot of brokenness in the family of God. Any perfect people in the room this morning? How about y'all watching online? Any perfect people watching online this morning? You get it right 100% of the time, never break a command of the Bible. No, there are times that we fall. There are times that we foul the ball, times that we struggle spiritually, make poor choices, bad decisions. 
In the first verse of Galatians 6, Paul gives us a a specific example of burden bearing uh, that takes place in the community of faith. Look at verse 1. Brothers, notice how he begins. What's the first word? Say it out loud. Brothers, family. We could add parenthetically, and sisters. Brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself. Remember, he's just talking about conceit and the problems of conceit. Keep watch on yourself because if you don't, you'll end up wagging a finger in their face saying, if you don't get it right, you're going to burn like a French fry one of these days. Now, just take that finger you're pointing out and turn it around. Or just be reminded every time you point a finger at somebody, you got three pointing right back at you. Somebody say amen this morning. Keep watch on yourself lest you be tempted to do the same thing. And you will be. Restoration. That's a novel thought in the house of God. How many have heard somebody say, you know, the Christian, Christian people are the only army in the world that have a tendency to shoot their own wounded. And unfortunately, that has been true. We're all subject to sin, but whenever we see it, what's your first response when you see a brother or sister involved in something they shouldn't be involved in? It's not to try to foster healing or to get them back to a healthy position. Most of the time, it's separation, not restoration. We move back away from them. We don't want to be seen with them. We don't, it's like we don't want it to touch us. And then we start talking about them. It's gossip is what it is. We pick up the phone or we start to text. Guess what I saw last night, right? But that's not a good first response. I mean, restoration ought to be a first response, not a last resort. And by the way, this is one way that you can tell who's walking in the Spirit and who's not. First word of Galatians 6 is the word brothers, and it reminds us that we're a family, that we're a family. Man, if something crazy happens to one of your kids, you're not going to pick up the phone and call your neighbor and start talking to them about how crazy your children are. I mean, the first response of a parent is to take care of the situation that's occurring in the life of the child. That's what family does. That's healthy. And the next phrase reminds us that even family members are are subject to that. If anyone is caught in any transgression, any one of y'all in the household of faith, kind of reminds me of the story in the Gospels of the woman that was caught in the act of adultery that got dragged to Jesus. She got caught in it, right? Paul's using kind of the same language here. Someone who is caught in it. And and sometimes people will read that story and they'll say, well, pastor, that was an egregious sin. I mean, she needed to be confronted. But the text says what? Any transgression. Isn't that what it says? Any transgression, not just the so-called class X sins. If a brother or sister is caught in any transgression, it doesn't matter if it's a sensational thing. Because God's people are called to holiness. And the thing about the church, this is why we have a church fundamentally, accountability, accountability. 
This is why there are no Lone Ranger Christians. This is why we need each other. This is why God calls us to serve him together as a family, to worship together, to sing together, to listen to preaching together, to dialogue about the scriptures together, to serve our community together, together, together. Because we need each other and others need us. And accountability is an important thing. And so we're called to confront people when they have fallen into sin, caught in a trespass. Now, I know immediately what people think. Well, that just sounds so judgmental. No, it's not. It's being accountable is what it is, not judgmental. This is what healthy relationships do in the life of those who are friends. I'll tell you what it is. Y'all still with me? Say amen. Using biblical language, it's iron sharpening iron. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. So one woman sharpens another. You remember in Matthew chapter 7 when Jesus said, hey, if you see a speck in your brother's eye, what does he say to do? Here's what you got to get. It's okay to point it out and try to get it out of there. See, that's what most people miss. They get caught up in the log, you know, in the log statement. And Jesus does say that. Jesus never said, if you see a speck in your brother's eye, which is a metaphorical reference to sin, Jesus never says, walk away from the speck, don't point out the speck, don't have anything to do with the speck, don't make waves. He never says that. What does he say? Get the speck out of the eye. But before you do it, make sure that there's not a big old plank sticking out of your own eye. Because if you try to remove a speck out of your brother or your sister's eye when there's a log sticking out of yours, that would be the classic definition of judgmentalism. Hypocrisy. But he doesn't say, don't pay any attention to the speck. And you know why he doesn't say that? Because if you leave a splinter in somebody's eye, there will be an infection and it may cost them their eye. It might even spread into the bloodstream and cost them their life. No, we got to get the splinter out of the eye. Just make sure you're walking by the Spirit of God when you do it. Because otherwise it's probably not going to be a good result. What does Paul say here? You who are what? Spiritual, restore him. Did you see that? Say amen. And by spiritual, there's a very real sense in which if you know Jesus Christ, that, see, this is all of us. Again, I ask the question, how many of you are saved people in the room? Let me hear you say amen. amen. Every one of you is spiritual because you got the Holy Spirit living within you. Hey, hey, hey. So we're all spiritual people, but I think that there is a sense when Paul is saying this, uh, that having made the statement of walking by the Spirit, that you need to make sure that you're not only spiritual and that you've been born again, but you need to make sure that you're spiritual in the sense of actually living by the Spirit. This is kind of Paul's way of saying, confront the sin just make sure that there's not a big old log sticking out of your eye. You should be spiritual as you do it. 
He goes on to say, do it in a spirit of what? What's the word that he uses? In a spirit of gentleness. That's right. Which typically will only happen from those who are walking by the Spirit of God because, as we looked at last week, the fruit of the Spirit is what? Gentleness. Gentleness. So, not hypocritically and not judgmentally, but restore them gently, kindly, because that's what spiritual people do. Never forget your own broken. As he says that here, keep watch on yourself. Don't forget the same thing could happen to you. You've heard the statement there, but for the grace of God, what? Go I. That's right. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. And people who tend to confront sin without keeping an eye on themselves, these are the people that tend to throw rocks in the process. Oh, now that brings us back to the story about the woman caught in the act of adultery now, doesn't it? She was caught in a sin and dragged before Jesus, but the people who dragged her before Jesus had logs sticking out of their eye the size of telephone poles, and they were not keeping watch on themselves. And as a result, what happened? They wanted to have a rock party. Ain't no gentleness going on there. They're all carrying rocks. And that's what tends to happen when you confront sin without keeping an eye on yourself. Let him who is without sin, Jesus said, you who are spiritual, first get the log out of your own eye so that you can more clearly and gently remove the speck from your brother's eye. The church is a family. And here's what Paul says, when we walk by the Spirit, we'll promote restoration. We won't shoot our wounded. We'll do everything we can. Restoration is not always possible. Sometimes the other person won't let themselves be restored. But where possible, Jesus of the Bible says, live at peace with every man, do whatever it takes that leads to peace and mutual edification. But when we're walking by the Spirit, we promote restoration, not alienation, when family members stumble and fall. And one thing that motivates me to do that, fourth and finally, is that the Spirit reminds me of judgment. This is part of the reason why Paul says, keep an eye on yourself. Can I remind everybody this morning that when Jesus comes, He's coming in judgment? Not just for the lost, the saved will also stand before God and give an account of their life. Look at verse 4 of chapter 6. But let each one test his own work. Why? Judgment is coming. His reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. Every time I read that, the first thing that comes to my mind is that sounds contradictory because Paul just said bear one another's burdens, and now he's saying you got to bear your own load. Well, in a sense, both of those things are right. I mean, that's the reason the translation that I'm using this morning translates that last word in verse 5, load, rather than burden. The word that's translated in verse 2, bear one another's what? Burdens, 
Verse 5, each one will have to carry his own load, two different Greek words. This load is, does not reflect that monstrous heavy load. This is a load that I would carry on my back in my backpack as I'm walking through an airport. I mean, it's a one-man job. I, I don't need anybody to help me carry my back. Well, sometimes I do if I've got too many books in them, but most of the time, no. There are times I may have to put both arms through the things to carry it, but most of the time it's a one-man job. That's what the load is here. And carrying that one man, carrying that pack that he's talking about here is a one-man job. You can't share that with anybody else. And that's, that's a reference to the judgment. Did you know that one of these days, the Bible says it in 2 Corinthians 5.10. Do we have that on the screen, 2 Corinthians 5.10? For we must all appear before the what? Judgment seat of Christ, that each one may give an account of the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Here's the thing. Everybody still with me? Say amen. Nobody's going to be standing at the judgment seat with you. It's you and Jesus. And there, there will be an evaluation of your life. And this is what Paul's talking about when he says each man, each woman must bear their own load. Because nobody can help you out at the judgment. And part of what's going to be revealed at the judgment, I think, is Jesus kind of looking at us and saying, okay, you're here now and you've got to bear your own load. Uh, let's take a look. How did you help others bear their loads while you were in this life? That's part of it. How we've used every part of our life will be revealed at the judgment. But I won't be able to help you bear your burden at the judgment. You won't be able to help me bear mine. And again, a good portion of what we'll have to answer for is how well we have fulfilled the law of Christ. As I have loved you, so you must love one another how we have loved others as Christ has loved us, how we've helped bear the burdens of others, how we have sought restoration for the fallen, loving them with tenderness and gentleness and kindness. For those who have stumbled, have we helped them back up, put them back together again, get back walking in a way that leads to health and growth and maturity? Those are the kinds of things and many others that represents the kind of load that each of us will have to carry on that great day when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And it bears the answer to the question with which we began today. The absolute reality that every single one of us needs to have on our minds as we live every day walking by the Spirit of God, and the reality is this, absolutely yes, I am my brother's keeper. Let's live like it and bring glory to God. This is His divine word and all God's people said.